Genesis chapter 49, verse 1 to 12. Jacob blesses his sons. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are in their swords. Let my soul Come not into their counsel, O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He scooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the word of the living God. His name be praised. Please be seated. I suppose it's a secular way of saying Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Many of the aspects of Christmas celebration tradition have become secularized from the original birth of Jesus Christ. As a result, most Christians don't really have a good understanding of what Christmas is really all about. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't say Merry Christmas. It sure beats Merry Xmas or happy holidays. What I'm saying is that we ought to have a deeper, a fuller, a richer grasp on what makes Christmas, Christmas. Stables, mangers, shepherds, wise men, they're all part of the story. But the real truth of Christmas lies centuries before It all began, really, with creation itself. When God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, proposed to create this universe and then to redeem this broken world and the mess that we've made of it as human beings. For the past two years here at Metropolitan, we have been making our way through the book of Genesis. We are just one week away from finishing that study. 
And over these past two years, as we have looked at this book, we have come to understand God sovereignly and wisely created all things step by step out of the plans that he had made and formed before the foundations of the world were even set in place. God has purposed, in spite of the human race, in spite of the serpent in the garden, who fought against God at every step, he has purposed what he is going to accomplish. The three chapters that we're going to examine this morning, five minutes apiece, the, five, the three chapters we're examining this morning, chapters 47, 48, and 49, they are crucial in helping us understand what Christmas is all about. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? Who is this one who has come? How does he fit into that eternal purpose and plan that God had established before even creating the world? Though the scenes from these three chapters occurred perhaps as many as 1,800 years before the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, before that very first Christmas, it is amazing to see just how perfectly God's plans were being carried out in the lives of Jacob, Joseph, and Judah. And so as our theme from this passage begins this morning, the whole of Scripture flows together, revealing the glorious plan of the eternal God from creation to Christ. All of it woven as one whole. The opening verses of our study this morning, which starts in chapter 47, finds Joseph and five of his brothers, as well as their father, coming into the throne room of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Consider the scene. Joseph, decked out in his full array as the viceroy of Egypt. Standing next to him, five guys dressed like shepherds. Dressed down, rough in their clothing, and a tottering old man as they come into this glorious throne room. They are facing one of the mightiest kings on the face of the earth at that time. It seems almost laughable, this scenario that's set before us in this passage. And yet, as we read the story, I want you to see God's plan is revealed in Jacob's blessing that he is going to give to Pharaoh. Who is the most important person in that room on that day? Was it Joseph, who actually was in charge of the whole country and had managed it all? Was it Pharaoh, the king, who is the only one above Joseph? Well, verse 10 tells us, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his the presence of Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. You see, the greater is the one who blesses the lesser. 
In this scenario that is set before us, Jacob is the greatest person in that room on that day. And why? Because Jacob was God's man. Jacob was the one through whom the Abrahamic blessing that was to bless all the nations was coming on that day. And so as we look at this passage, I want you to notice the connection as we see God's plan working out in politics and in faith. You see, God is the one who has sent Joseph down to Egypt 13 years earlier to be a slave and to be a prisoner for this very moment as they stood with his family before Pharaoh. Now, Joseph, he was a politician. He was so good at politics as a man of power and a man of persuasion, a man of governance, that the Scripture tells us that Pharaoh, hearing him only speak once, put him in charge of the whole land. Part of the 47th chapter tells us how Joseph was able to get all of the people of of Egypt to give their property to Pharaoh, to give their livestock to Pharaoh, and even to promise their own lives to Pharaoh, and then to thank Joseph for it. Donald Trump could use a Joseph. The wisdom of Joseph in matters that had to do with governance and politics was very crucial for the running of the land and making it through a very difficult time, the seven years of famine. And now, at the crucial moment in time, the story of Abraham has taken up most of this book so far. When the story of Abraham is in danger of being eliminated through famine, in the land of Canaan, miraculously, one of Jacob's sons is standing as viceroy of the whole land of Egypt. Accidental? No. Sovereignly purposed by God. Verse 1 of chapter 47 says, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, they have come from the land of Canaan. You know, we need more godly people involved in politics. Men and wisdom, men and and women of wisdom and of common sense. God had gifted Joseph with those abilities, woven them together in the womb so that Joseph would grow up and be able to use those God-given gifts in the midst of the politics of Egypt, using them for the good of the nation that he was serving in, but also using them the good, for the good of the God that he served. We see the same in Moses, later on in David, in Daniel, and many others in the scriptures. Politics and faith can coincide 
without compromise if godly people use wisdom. But that's not the center point of this text. It is not just about politics. We need to notice as we see God's plan working out in plans and in the future of the lives of Joseph's brothers. You see, when Jacob and his sons came down from Canaan into Egypt, they were planning on just staying a short period of time. They figured five years more famine, we'll be here, and then we'll go back to our land. And that's why in verse 4, here's what they say to Pharaoh. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. What is a sojourner? A sojourner is a person who is there temporarily with anticipation of leaving, of going back. Five years of famine, we're going to stay here, and then we're going to pack up, and we're going to head. We'll be out of your hair in just a short period of time. They were only asking help for those few years as sojourners. But Jacob, he should have known better. Jacob should have known the story of Abraham. And the word that God had given to Abraham many years earlier, that his descendants would be in a land that was not their own and would be there for over 400 years. Could Jacob foresee that this was the beginning of those 400 years? The sons had no idea, it appears. But should Jacob have seen this is God's plan? God is working this out. He has told us that it would happen, and it is now being fulfilled right before our eyes. All of Abraham's descendants, through Isaac, and through Jacob, have now been gathered together, 70 of them gathered together in the land of Egypt, preparing for this time of famine, but really, in God's plan, planning for the future of Israel. Because they were shepherds, the Egyptians who despised shepherds were going to shut them off. They're going to move them to a place away from the rest. That would allow them to grow up as a people, as a nation. In over 400 years, to become a numerous people. What seemed to these sons to be simply a means of keeping their family alive from a famine was really part of this eternal plan that God had purposed for the creation of a nation that would eventually bring forth the Savior of the world. Notice as well that we see God's plan in Jacob's life in his pilgrimage, and in forgiveness. You see, we're really a lot like Jacob and his sons, aren't we? This Christmas season, most of us have been very busy trimming trees and buying presents and making our plans for the events of the the holiday. Very few of us have asked this Christmas season, what is God doing this Christmas in my life? What is God doing in the lives of those around me as he is planning the outworking of his great eternal kingdom? You see, we don't get it any more than Jacob and his sons. God is working just as much today in your life and my life as he was in the lives of Jacob and Joseph 
in Judah. He is still at work today bringing forth his purpose that he purposed before the creation of the world and is going to carry on until that day when Christ returns. But we're like Joseph or Jacob. As Jacob responds to Pharaoh, and we see it in verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of my years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. You can almost hear the quavering in his voice. Now, Pharaoh has basically asked Joseph, how's it going? Jacob's answer is to describe things from the human perspective. What his life felt like. And and Jacob was right in many ways about his life. He grew up in a dysfunctional family. His father and mother, Isaac and Rebekah, had played favorites with their sons. They had tricked each other. They had failed in communicating. They set up a rivalry between their two sons that almost led to Esau killing off Jacob until Jacob fled. And he flees Spend seven years working for a wife, and then he's given a different woman on his wedding night. He then spends another seven years working for his original desire for a wife. Six more years of labor. And during that time, he is now in a relationship with four women. There's strife between these two sisters, Leah and Rachel. His brother-in-laws then become jealous of him, and they threaten to kill him. And so, once again, he flees. He takes off with his family, but his father-in-law catches up to him and is about to kill him, except God, in a dream, says, don't touch him. But soon, as Jacob gets separated from his father-in-law Laban, he hears that his brother Esau has heard that he's on his way and is coming with 400 armed men. You just got out of the lion's den and now you're in with the crocodiles. Life is tough for him. Later on, after God gets him out of those issues, His ten sons come back home with a tattered, ripped-up garment covered with blood. And for 22 years, Jacob believes that his son Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. And now, just before arriving here on this scene in this text, he finds out, no, Joseph is alive. It was just that my sons sold him off as a slave. What's that do to a father's heart? Yes, indeed, if, if you look at life from Jacob's perspective, truly his life is few and the days are evil. And if he had left it there, we might have felt sorry for him. And that would have been the end of the story. But Jacob had another perspective on life. 
Look at it from the underside of a tapestry, and what do you see? A lot of strings, loose, messed up. But get that glimpse from the upper side of the tapestry, and what do you see? You see the wonders of God's great grace. And so in chapter 48, verses 15 and 16, we see the other side of the tapestry. We read, and he blessed Joseph and he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Oh, Pharaoh, from your perspective and the world's perspective, my life, it's been a few years in evil. But from God's perspective, he redeemed me from that evil. God has transformed me. God has changed my life. Yes, in this world, we have hardships. But God has sent to Jacob a redeemer from that evil. Jacob had found forgiveness from his waywardness as he wrestled with that angel that one night who blessed him and changed Jacob's heart. But my friends, you and I, we have a greater vision than what Jacob saw. It is no angel that has redeemed us. It is the eternal Son of God Himself who has come. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born in the day... This day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob was that Christmas day would bring salvation and forgiveness to those whom the Father had promised eternal life. Well, chapter 47, it ends with Jacob and his family secure in Egypt. Five years have turned now into 17 years. Jacob is 147 years old, and he's nearing the time of his death. And as we read in chapter 48, I want you to notice God's plan is revealed in Joseph receiving his father's blessing for his sons. Joseph's blessing by Jacob, of his sons. The scene opens. Joseph is bringing his two sons before his dying father. Manasseh, the oldest, Ephraim, the younger. They are to be blessed by the father. Have you realized how often it is that Jacob is blessing others as we've gone through these passages? This also is part of God's promise to Abraham that through him the nations would be blessed. So notice we see God's plan in promise and in fields. You know the story of the angels, right? As they appear to the shepherds watching their flocks in the fields at night outside of Bethlehem. How did it happen that they were there when Jacob and his sons, we find, down in Egypt. It happened because of God's promise that God gives through Jacob to Joseph in verses 3 and 4. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz 
in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I'll make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Yes, Jacob is in Egypt, but his heart is in Canaan. Jacob and his sons have become comfortable in that rich Nile basin called Goshen. Their flocks are healthy. Their children are growing. It's a peaceful time. Joseph is still viceroy, and things are still good. Five years have turned into 17, and it seems there's no end in sight. But Jacob's eyes are not on what is. They are on what should be. God's promise, not life's pleasantries. Canaan is his home, not Egypt. He wants Joseph to know that God's promise continues after Jacob dies. So look at verse 22. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Wait a minute. Is this some kind of a joke? I mean, think about it. One little mountain in the whole land of Canaan, and I'm giving it to you. Joseph already owned all of Egypt. What did he care about? One little mountain off in Canaan someplace. But it is no joke. You see, the promise came first to Abraham when Abraham owned nothing in the land of Canaan at all. But God had promised to him the whole of the land. By the time Abraham dies, he owns one well and one field with a cave where he could bury his wife, Sarah. By the time Isaac dies, Isaac owns one more field. So now they own two fields and a cave and a well. Lots. Now Jacob has added to that a mountain slope. A mountain slope, two fields, a cave, and a well. In the whole land of Canaan, that's all that they own. And yet, as Jacob is about to die, by faith... He cedes that property to Joseph and to the descendants based upon the eternal promise of God. But notice we also see God's plan in predestination and in favoritism, both working together. You see, the the scene is shifting again from Jacob and Joseph to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob claims them as his own sons. He already has 12. Now he wants these two as his as well. And if you don't know why, you need to read the rest of the story. But it all is fitting into God's eternal plan. So as Jacob begins to bless these two boys, he lays his right hand on the younger, on Ephraim's head, and his left hand on the older, Manasseh's head. Verse 20, and so he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God will make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Later in Israel's history, we'll see why. For in the land of Ephraim, Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom, is found in Ephraim's territory. God is working out his eternal purpose even in the selection of the younger over the older. 
Much more could be said about all this. I've already gone over time this morning, so let me just briefly walk us through this ending. Chapter 49. Notice how God's plan is revealed in Judah's being blessed. Twelve sons are about to be blessed by Jacob. Some of them, the first four, were read by Peter this morning. Verse 1 indicates that, as it says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. The prophetic voice of God is coming forth through Jacob in a glorious revelation of God's eternal purpose beginning with Judah. So, as we look at these stories, notice we see God's plan brought together in power and in fulfillment. There are 12 sons, but only two sons receive major blessings. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. Of all of those, just Judah and Joseph receive major blessings. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. And it goes on for the next several verses. And in those few verses, there are eight prophetic statements that God makes through Jacob about Judah and his line. I want to just cover a couple. Judah is the lion. What do we read in Revelation chapter 5? Jesus Christ, the descendant of Judah, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The kingly scepter will never depart from your hand. Well, the kingly physical line of David... Stop being kings in 586 B.C., over 500 years before Jesus was born. But Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, a descendant of Judah and David. He will wash his robes in wine, wine representing, as the Scripture says, the wrath of God against the wickedness of the world, Christ, fully enveloped, in the blood of his self, so that he might provide for us the escape from the wrath of God. And finally, the binding of the foal to the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine. The binding of the foal takes us to Palm Sunday. As the people gathered together and proclaimed that Jesus Christ was to be the King, Son of David, forever. Herein lies the secret of Christmas, the promise of God through Jacob to Judah of the one who was to be his descendant, Jesus Christ. But in the end, notice that we see God's plan also in preference and in fruitfulness. You see, there's also a major blessing on Joseph. We can understand Judah, but why Joseph? It's easy to see the promise of Jesus in Judah. The New Testament points it out many times, but, but what do we do with this blessing? Is it just the preference of an old man as his favorite son? I'm going to say something good about you. Well, the blessing on Joseph begins in verse 22. Joseph 
is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Judah may represent Jesus Christ. Joseph represents the church and the people of God. The promises to Joseph are the promises that God gives to the people of God, that they will be fruitful, that they will grow into an innumerable multitude. Even though we may face the persecution similar to what Joseph endured, because God is for us, who can be against us? There's so much to say about this great God who has set forth His plan and has carried it out in perfection. That's the Christmas story. The story of God at work through the centuries, carrying out His eternal purpose in spite of the rebellious and sinful hearts of humanity. How could Joseph or Mary have foreseen all that would happen in those short 33 years of Jesus' life? Even the angels and shepherds and wise men, the meeting of Simeon and Anna in the temple and all the rest of the incredible Christmas story. Joseph and Mary are just seeing a tiny part of what God had purposed. And so are you. And so am I. We are just a small part, but we are part. And so is Jeremiah, Jehovah Jireh Morin. But we can have this assurance that the same God who worked through Jacob, who worked through Joseph, who worked through Judah, is still at work today in your life and in mine on this Christmas for his glory and for the good of his kingdom. And so I ask you this morning, as you reflect on these three chapters, have you grasped the glorious eternal purpose of God as he has worked it out through history? Have you seen it? Have you grasped a hold of it? Because if you do, your faith will be strengthened and your hope in Christ will be renewed day by day. Let's pray. Unto you, O God, we give praise, honor, and glory. We thank you for your deeming work. For it is through what you have purposed and planned that all has come to be, even on this day. Joy to the world. Truly, the Lord has come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.